And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Buys a ticket for a magical mystery tour. He knows what to expect. We guarantee him the trip of a lifetime, and that's just what he gets—the incredible magical mystery tour. With filming for the magical mystery tour film now complete, the Beatles set about finishing the songs which would feature in its soundtrack. Many of the songs so far had been completed to a rough mix stage so that the sequences that related to each one could be filmed. While there was only one completely new song to be recorded, as well as more incidental music for the film, finishing touches were all that were needed for most tracks. One of Paul's contributions was the first to be completed. isolation mix of take six of The Fool on the Hill, 
featuring John and George on harmonica in a similar vein to being for the benefit of Mr. Kite and Paul playing recorder. The Beatles had re-recorded several parts to improve upon Take 4, making it all but a remake from its previous incarnation. A small snippet of a seagull-like sound was dropped in and a trio of flutes added on the 20th of October, making the song complete and ready for its final mix. Paul had escaped with a friend to the south of France to film the dreamy sequences which would accompany the song in the finished movie. On the 27th of September, the Beatles returned to I Am The Warrus, adding the final pieces to what was planned to be the A-side of the Beatles' next single. John had a very clear idea of what he wanted to include, as George Martin explains. One of the songs on Magical Mystery Tour that John wrote was I Am The Warrus, which is pretty far out. One of my favourite songs. And typical John, when he came to me with this, um, he said, I'd like, I'd like you to do a score on this one for me. He said, I'd like all sorts of things to be happening. I'd like to use you know, some straight low strings, cellos or whatever, and some brass.
an orchestra-only isolation mix of George Martin's arrangement for I Am The Walrus, recorded as an overdub in Studio One onto Take 17, with Take 20 being considered the best. But John had more ideas which would come to fruition later the same evening. He said, I want to have a kind of um, laughter as well, and I want to have a chorus. So I actually scored out completely all the things that the choir had to sing. We had a choir of 12 men, six men and six girls. Uh, actually, they were a very sort of square choir, if you like, very professional choir. And John was a little bit <laughs> worried about them to begin with. But when they saw what they had to do, they entered in spirit a great deal. I mean, they were, I'd actually written into the score, ha, 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 he, 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 and all this kind of thing. And the whoops and the, the slides and things. They were all written down. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggmen. I am the Walrus. The Mike Sam singers overdubbing their contribution onto I Am The Walrus in Studio 2 on the 27th of September. Take 25 was now deemed the complete version of the song. Or was it? But even that wasn't chaotic enough for John. He still wanted a bit more randomness, if you like. And he got that by plugging in a radio when we were mixing and getting a... suddenly came across a Shakespearean play being broadcast with a great deal of static. He said, that's great, we'll have that in the record too. And so, straight off the air, to this day I don't know who the people were, into our mix of I and the Walrus went this rather weird Shakespearean play. It was an extraordinary track. Slave, thou hast slain me. Villain, take my purse. If ever thou wilt thrive, bury my body. And give the letters which thou find'st about me to Edmund, Earl of Gloucester. Seek him out upon the British party. Oh, untimely death. Death. I know thee well, a serviceable villain, as duteous to the vices of thy mistress as badness would desire. What? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rest you. Did you know when you were doing walrus and I came to the station and sat at your feet for eight hours? Yeah, you... I seem to remember it, yeah. You were playing um, guitars and organ and singing on it, and that took about eight hours or something, did it? Yeah. And uh, I listened to the record now. I can't hear any guitars or organ or anything. What happened? Uh, oh, well, you see, you can. Oh, it's like this. Organ? I don't think we had organ on it. I was playing electric piano. Was that when you were there? Yeah. <laughs> electric piano. Yeah. Making that beat. No. And uh, it's still on it. You can hear it at the beginning. Going, dun, 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 dun. Are you going to play Walrus? Uh, I've yeah. heard a sneaky rumour. Because yeah, we go, the electric yeah, cuckoo exactly. down. You see, that's the plan. Hey, that's what we do. We put cuckoo over yeah. there. The evening standard rang me up and said, what do you think about this business of the Beatles record Walrus having the word knickers in it? And I, my quotation to them was, I can't see how anyone can get offended from the word knickers. After all, 50% of the population wear them, which I think is quite reasonable. I think you're absolutely correct on that point, Chris. And I think uh, it's, uh, men like you to make it possible for men like you today. <laughs> hey, it's men like me who wear the knickers. <laughs> Cut, yeah. Now notice on this one, there's a hell of a lot of editing, a heck of a lot of editing. What? On Walrus? On Walrus, yeah. There's all voices and things in. Yeah, that's not editing. See, we did that on the remix. So mm -hmm. we had, like, that track you were there for on the yeah. electric piano and drums and things. Then we put the bass on separate. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we put the musicians on. And then when we were remixing, we had all the voices, yeah. which we just brought in. As, like as we're doing it, sort of bit ad-lib, you know, so it's not editing at all, it was just all going on. 
And now we're going to play a track from uh, Magical Mystery Tour, which is one of my favorite albums because it was so weird. And uh, it's Eye on the Walrus. It's also one of my favorite tracks because I did it, of course, but also because it's one of those that has enough little biddies going to keep you interested, even a hundred years later. Fishwife, pornographic priestess Boy, you've been a naughty girl You let your knickers down Isolation mix of I Am The Walrus, highlighting the complexities of the song and the diverse mixture of elements which featured in its recording. Save for some mixing in October, the track was now complete. The Beatles then turned their attention to the instrumental track Flying, still with its working title of Aerial Tour Instrumental at this stage. We made up a song called Flying one time in the studio using uh, a Mellotron which is the lead instrument on it, which is sort of trombone sound. And then we just put a kind of 12 bar behind it. So we thought, well, that's a nice enough song. Could be a sequence. With the band having laid down the instruments and vocals on the 8th of September, it was decided to replace the Dixieland Mellotron ending with more atmospheric sounds. Mellotron, courtesy of John, guitar from George and various percussion items probably taken by Ringo and Paul from the famous Cupboard Under the Stairs in Studio 2, 
were added as experimental endings for the song. Various tape loops were also added just for completeness. Five takes of the ending were recorded to be added to take eight. Take two of the edit pieces recorded for flying. With the various edit pieces added on, the whole track clocked in at just over nine and a half minutes.
an edited rough mix of take eight of Aerial Tour Instrumental. The original nine-minute length of the track was, of course, edited down to a much more sensible two minutes and 17 seconds on the released version. The last days of September and the first day of October saw the completion of Your Mother Should Know, which had been around for nearly two months. The remake, which was attempted on the 16th of September, was abandoned. John and Paul went back to Take 9 from the Chapel Studios version recorded in August and set about adding organ and bass guitar overdubs to the track. The 2nd of October saw the introduction of a brand new song into Studio 2. Beatles assistant Alistair Taylor remembers being at Paul's house in Cavendish Avenue and asking him how he goes about writing songs. Paul took him to the dining room where a harmonium stood in the corner and as he played some chords, Paul urged Taylor to call out the opposite words to what he was singing. And so the game went. Yes, no, stop, go, hello, goodbye. Hello, hello, take one.
take one of Hello, Hello, the working title of Hello, Goodbye, recorded in Studio 2 on the 2nd of October, 1967. With Paul on piano, Lennon on Hammond organ, Ringo on drums and George shaking the tambourine, 14 takes were needed to capture the backing track, which from the start included what was called the Maori ending. Even though it was more Hawaii than New Zealand, seeing that it contained the word aloha. The song would be left in this state for the next two weeks. In the interim, with plenty of editing and mixing going on behind the scenes, the Beatles decided to capture some more incidental music for inclusion in the film. On the 12th of October, John Lennon was officially credited as a producer for the very first time, as he directed the recording of a track called Shirley's Wild Accordion a jaunty little 3-4 number officially written and copyrighted to Lennon and McCartney, although more accurately hummed to arranger Mike Leander, with whom Paul had previously arranged the strings for She's Leaving Home. Shirley Evans, who was brought along on the week of filming for Magical Mystery Tour, had led sing-alongs on the bus with her trusty accordion, and was now brought to Studio 3 with her musical partner Reg Wade to record the track. also worked in their own home studios to provide more incidental music, using tape loops, mellotrons and all sorts of sounds to create musical landscapes to support what was happening on the screen at various times. John remembers Paul handing him the directive for one memorable segment. He did worked out with Mal and then he came and showed me what his idea was and this is how it went. It went around like this, the story and he had it all, you know, I think production and he says, well, here's the segment, you write a little piece for that. And I thought, fucking hell, I've never made a film. What do you mean? He said, write a script. So, you know, I ran off and, and wrote the dream sequence for the fat woman and all the thing with the spaghetti and all that. And and all that. It was like that, you know. And then we were all, George and I were sort of grumbling, you know, fucking movie. You know, well, we better do it. You know, a feeling that we, we owed the public or owed somebody other that we should do these things. You know? So we made it, you know. I mean, the scene that to me that stands out is the one of John shoveling the spaghetti onto the fat woman's plate. Uh, I mean, that was the best bit of the movie for me. That was an actual dream he'd had. And so he'd come in, you know, and he'd sort of say, hey, I had this wild dream last night, I'd like to do it. I'm a waiter, you know. And so we just put them in, you know, and uh, it was very haphazard. You know, looking back on it, it's how you learn kind of thing by your mistakes, you know. Thank you. 
Jesse's Dream, again copyrighted, but this time to McCartney, Starkey, Harrison and Lennon, and recorded privately for use in the Magical Mystery Tour film. Another piece recorded at home was for the scenes where the Beatles were dressed as the four magicians, monitoring the progress of the bus along the Dewsbury Road. Come with me now into that secret place where the eyes of man have never set foot. is 10 miles north on the Dewsbury Road. Oh, it's only 10 miles away. But 10 miles should be here. But 10 miles away. 10 miles away. Ooh. I wonder what the magicians are cooking up now. Ready. Yeah, fellas. Oh, 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 o
Take 16 of Hello Goodbye, featuring a double guitar part played in unison by George and John, most of which would be mixed out of the final version. The only other addition to the song were two violas, overdubbed on the 20th of October, and a new bass guitar part from Paul. While the song was not heavily featured in the Magical Mystery Tour film, save for the sing-along ending, it was deemed good enough to become the A-side of the next single release, which had until now been reserved for I Am The Walrus. Much to John's annoyance, his song was bumped to the B-side, thus creating the latest number one single for the Beatles. The accompanying promotional film clip for Hello Goodbye used a mix without the violas to satisfy the British Musicians Union's directive that there should be no miming in such performances. The Beatles complied with this, although their mouthing of the words was deliberately so atrocious that viewers would have no doubt that they were miming to the record. One, two, three, four. isolation mix of Hello Goodbye. The Magical Mystery Tour EP was released in the UK on the 8th of December, ahead of the screening of the film on British television. George Martin explains its release and his feelings about its recording. Magical Mystery Tour was issued in England not as an album, but as an extended play record. America didn't have those, so America issued it as an album, but it wasn't designed that way, and so it was a kind of, it was a kind of byway, if you like. It wasn't in the mainstream 
of all the albums we were making. And it was rather chaotic, a little bit disorganised, a little bit brilliant. It was all the kind of things that, um, in retrospect, we could have made it better if we'd been tidier. But it was what they wanted to do at that time. They were enjoying their freedom, and the freedom extended into their music too. Sometimes it became chaotic. And it, I saw something of this during Pepper, when if you listen to the end of um, Lovely Rita, for example, it, it tails off into a kind of freestyle thing that was very typical of what we did in Mag Magical Mystery Tour, when they would let everything hang out and just fool around and hope that something came of it. Um, I wasn't terribly into this. I, I wanted a little bit more organisation in my recording than they wanted to do. But they did it. And the other significant thing about Magical Mystery Tour is that it was the first real video that ever happened. Because when, they sh when we recorded Magical Mystery Tour, the whole idea was to create a, a colour film around it. They had done little videos of other things. They'd done something of Strawberry Field before, something in, I think of Penny Lane as well. But this was the first time they treated the whole album like a, a visual exercise. With the filming and the music complete, all that was left now was to edit the film and have it shown. You've been, the past uh, three weeks or so, you've been chopping up a film. Tell us something about it. Everything about it. Uh, well, well, for the past two or three weeks or so, Ken, we've been chopping up this film. Good God. As you so rightly said. And oh, thanks. some of it's very nice and some of it's boring, you see, because mm. you just got to look through hundreds and hundreds of bits of film. How much have you cut out? Uh, quite a lot. Mm. Yes, what have you cut out? Uh, I can't remember, you see, it's so bad. You cut out all the good bits and left the bad bits in, have you? No, no, that's silly, Chris. That's Chris Jennings, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Who is silly. Mm. Listen, um, <clears throat> this film... Oh, yeah. Tell us something about the storyline. Well, you see, it's, uh, it's about a group of Camera Garden strange people mm. on a coach tour around, uh, anywhere, really. And uh, things happen to them, you see. Something like Goldie Ridley, diddly do, magical mystery door. And there's a little scene. Well, how long did it take you? That's an average question. It's taken eight weeks to cut it. Are you doing the editing yourself? Yes. I mean, not actually physically doing it, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're doing everything. Are you really? To see how it's done. We had it planned, but yeah, well, we'll make the film and then we'll have three weeks to edit and put the sound on. It's taken eight weeks to edit it and we're just getting into the sound now. So it's a lot harder than what we well, first imagined. Are ready for Christmas? Oh, Christ, yes, it will be ready for Christmas. <laughs> Is it actually going to be shown on television? Yes, on the, uh, on the TV. On BBC Two? In colour? Uh, we don't know which. I don't know whether it'll be on RTL or BBC. We haven't worked it out yet. Uh, we'll cut ITV yeah, out when cut, we're ready. Cut the word ITV out. Yeah, cut the word ITV out. And that boomeranged on them, too, because it was issued by the BBC, put out on British television, which in those days was black and white, and it was designed to be colour. And it was given prime time viewing in Christmas time, and it was boring. In black and white, it didn't have the impact of the colour, and it, was, it got a big raspberry from everybody. It was the first real setback they had. But it was a brave attempt, and it, it showed how things were going to happen later on. Magical Mystery Tour had its television debut on BBC One on Boxing Day 1967, one of the biggest primetime television slots on the calendar. Most viewers were expecting more of an all-singing, all-dancing variety show. What they got was something very different indeed. Telecast in glorious black and white, public reaction to the film was dismal and controversial. So much so that the very next night, Paul appeared on the David Frost show to try to explain the Beatles' intentions. Thank you kindly, thank you, good evening and welcome. Uh, it's been clear to us today that really there's been one main controversy in Britain today. It wasn't wars anywhere or anything else. It was the uh, differing views on one television programme last night on a channel known as the BBC. Uh, the Beatles' music brings unanimous enthusiasm and approval pretty well. Last night, their television show did not bring unanimous enthusiasm and approval, and everyone seems to have been discussing it today. Here is the man most responsible, Mr. Paul McCartney. Top of the evening. Good evening, Mr. Paul. Good evening, Mr. McCartney. Uh, why don't you think that the critics like this film? I don't know, you know. They just didn't seem to like it. I, I quite liked it myself. 
Well, I like it. I, I saw it. I didn't see it last night because I was a bit busy, but I saw it today, and uh, and and I liked it. I mean, with reservations and so on. But I mean, why were people so puzzled by it? Do you think? I think they thought it was bitty, which it was a bit. You know, but it was supposed to be like that. I think a lot of people were looking for a plot, and there wasn't one. <laughs> what was the? I mean, we thought that we could just do a thing. See, we've been waiting for a couple of years now to make a, another feature film. And we've been asking people to write stories and write plots, in fact, targets. But uh, nobody's come up with one, you know. So we thought we would do something which isn't like that, you know, which isn't like a real film in as much as it's got a story in the beginning. We'll just do a selection of, you know, we put together a lot of things that we like to look on and see what happens. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't the kind of thing we could do a disclaimer before and say, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is the product of our imaginations. And believe me, at this point, they're quite vivid. You couldn't do that. You know, you just have to be, here it is. And so I think the younger people would get it. People who knew what was going on in, in society would get it. And the older people who were expecting a variety show wouldn't get it. And I think, in a way, quite rightly, would be annoyed. It's like they'd been cheated out of the Christmas special. But it, it was something we felt we had to do. We realised it was going to be seen as indulgent. That's why we'd done it. I think probably if we'd have realised all of this was going to happen, we would have said, look, no BBC, no Christmas holidays. Let's do it as a, an arts film. Let's do it as a specialist thing and let everyone know this is a sort of French surreal cinema peace you know I think then people would have been able to accept it a bit better they hated it at least the people who wrote in the newspaper hated it don't forget that with all the success we'd had every time something came out a new record or, or whatever they'd all try and slam it because once they've built you up that high you know all they can do is knock you back down again I mean that's what happens that's life so they, they really didn't like it, but it's understandable too because it wasn't a brilliant scripted thing that was executed well. It was like a little home movie, really, it, an elaborate home movie. I think it's quite interesting now, looking back on it as a period piece, and people like Spielberg, I've read that people like him have sort of said, when I was in film school, we re that was a film we really took notice of, like an art film, you know, rather than a proper film. But, of course, we then released it um, got it shown on the BBC on Boxing Day. And, of course, they showed it in black and white. And so it was hated. You know, they all had their chance then to say they've gone too far. Who do they think they are? What does it mean? So that was really slated. But, of course, when people started seeing it in colour, uh, they realised that it was, was a lot of fun. You know, especially that aerial ballet shot. You know, we went all over Iceland, sent a guy out filming. In the end, Magical Mystery Tour has preserved a slice of 60s psychedelia. With its ad-lib script, far-out camera work, bizarre costumes and brilliant songs, it was the culmination of a year like no other for the Beatles. Neil Aspinall recalls. You know, in reality, we hadn't done it uh, as professionally, you know, as it as it could have been done, right? But it was our first go at that sort of stuff, you know? And it was in a very uh, traumatic period of everybody of everybody's career, if you like, you know? And uh, we did the best we could. And I think uh, under all the circumstances, it, it really turned out very well. You know? I think we thought it was okay. I think looking back on it, I think we were quite pleased with it. Um, at the time, it was all right. You know, it wasn't the greatest thing we'd ever done. I defend it on the lines that nowhere else do you see a performance of I'm the Walrus. That's the only performance ever. Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll explore the Beatles at home. How the always public Fab Four recorded their lives and music more privately during the 1960s. Until next time... 